Well, good morning, everybody. I like the response. Well done. Um, well, hey, as Rick said, my name is Brian Key. I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer Fellowship in Kansas City. I'm excited uh, to be here with you guys this morning. Bye, baby girl. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, when Rick asked me to come a while back, man, I was just giddy uh, to get here because of a couple of reasons. One, I've been praying for my friends for a number of years, been praying for actually this church family uh, for a number of years. So since we met, I think it was seven years ago, um, we've prayed for North Church. I've prayed for Rick and Jen. And we, as we've gotten to know their family, like we've only grown in love and affection uh, for them. And I've especially prayed for you guys over the last several months, because as you face the broken realities of life in your own backyard, uh, we've been burdened that you would find hope and you would find life and you would find joy and rest and satisfaction in the Redeemer himself, in the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. And so as we spend time together today, I want to take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, and I want us to hear what Jesus has to say to us in the middle of all of our pain, in the middle of all of our brokenness, and all the questions and the longings that we face, that you faced in the last few months. And I think that as we take a look at our text today, we're going to see that God has an answer for the deepest longings of our hearts. And it isn't a program. It isn't a political platform. It's a person. Uh, So let's read our text this morning. It's Matthew 5, verse 6, and then I'll pray um, because we need God's help. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, and even as I say that word, Father, what an earth-shattering reality that you invite us to call you Father. That broken, jacked-up people like us can call the sovereign God of the universe Father is nothing short of a miracle which is amazing news that you're a miracle-working God because, God, what I actually need for you this morning is for you to work a miracle because there's a couple of things at play here, God. Uh, We've seen that the world around us is broken. God, as I heard news reports and talked with Rick last night, news out of Nigeria is that the world is broken. News out of Paris this week tells us that the world is broken. News from our backyard as we stand right here in this building is that the world is broken. And God, it's not just that the world around us is broken. We actually are broken people. We're hurting people. And so, God, whether it's due to the reality of our own sin or the reality of sin committed against us, we are hurting people. We're longing for things to be made right. And, God, we can't do a single thing about it. And, God, as I stand here to declare your word today, I can't do a single thing about it. And so what I ask is, Spirit of the living God, would you come and speak to your people this morning? 
Would you speak to our hearts? God, your word says that where the cares of our heart are many, your consolations cheer our souls. So God, what I pray is that you would comfort our souls, bring consolation to our souls, convict our hearts where we're resting in something else and looking to something else to satisfy us other than Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as the satisfaction of all of our longings this morning. So God, would you do what I can't do? Grant faith, grant repentance, grant joy in the hearts and lives of your people as we worship you and we sit under your word today. So God, as I preach and I'm aware of my own weakness, I pray that your spirit goes forth and does what I can't do. And so God, in light of that, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O God, my strength and my redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. So our world is marked by longing. And longing is a strong and persistent desire, craving especially for something that's unattainable or distant. And every human being lives with that emotion. We all have longings. And it's one that's felt on every level of our being, whether it be physically, spiritually, emotionally, or psychologically. And we try to fill our longings with all kinds of things, but deep down, What we most desperately long for seems unavailable or unattainable. At the root of this longing is this sense that this ain't the way it's supposed to be. One theologian describes the way things are supposed to be as this. He says that the way things are supposed to be is the webbing together of God and humans and all creation and justice and fulfillment and delight. And he says that's what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing and wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the creator and savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom he delights. So shalom, in other words, he tells us, is the way things are supposed to be. And as he describes shalom, the world that we long for actually begins to take shape, right? We long to live in a world like that, but we live in a world marked by the vandalism of shalom. And so we long for this thing that we can't have. It seems unattainable. It seems unavailable to us. And our text this morning is found in the opening words of Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And typically we reduce the Sermon on the Mount to a list of things that we need to do to, to live in the kingdom of God. Uh, But Jesus is doing something different in the Sermon on the Mount, something even bigger than telling us what it looks like to live as his disciples. He's declaring to us the inauguration of his kingdom. He's declaring to us the, the reality of the redemptive and restorative beauty of his kingdom. And he's actually inviting us to embrace the reality of the kingdom of God. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is recasting for us a vision of the world as we long for it to be. He's declaring to us that the reality of his kingdom is here with us. And not only is he declaring the presence and reality of the kingdom, he's inviting us to come and take part in his kingdom. And if we zoom in further on our text today, our text is found in a list of nine statements that make up what one pastor says the most radical introduction to a sermon ever preached. Because we're tempted to read the Beatitudes as statements or character traits that we need to embody. Or at the very least, we use them as a way to accomplish salvation by attitude, as if we can be this attitude and Jesus will love us. But the Beatitudes aren't entry requirements into the kingdom of God. They're not instructions on how to enter the kingdom of God. 
They're not imperatives. They're indicatives. They're not demands. They're declarations. They're not injunctions. They're invitations to us. See, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is turning the world as we know it upside down, or better yet, right side up. He's not saying, blessed are you who have met the conditions of entry into the kingdom. He's saying, blessed are you because the reality of the kingdom is available to you in spite of the state and condition it finds you in. See, what Jesus wants us to see, as one writer says, is that no one is beyond Beatitude. No one is beyond the curative reach of the kingdom of heaven, and you, even you, are invited into the reality and life of the kingdom, which is, my friends, the life we've always wanted. See, the reality of the kingdom is good news that meets us in the reality of where we are. It meets us in the middle of our longing to live in a world as it should be. And while we face the reality of a broken world around us, that it all makes us feel this sense that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, Jesus comes and declares the reality of his kingdom. But the way that it's that it's not the way it's supposed to be is the human predicament. We all have this sense, this longing that things aren't right, that we lack something, that something around us is broken. We know a lot about longing in Kansas City because we experienced something this fall that you guys get to experience like every other year, except with different results. You actually win the World Series. We didn't this year. But I've lived in Kansas City for eight years, and for the last eight years, all I've heard from people outside is like, hey, when are you going to get a real baseball team and a real football team? When is something going to happen there? Why are you still uh, fielding a minor league baseball team? But this fall, for the first time in three decades, three decades, our baseball team mattered at least for a few weeks, and it was amazing. It was amazing. We had a real longing, and our longing was finally answered, kind of, except it didn't turn out like it did in 85. We had a real longing. We had a real longing, but it was one that in the grand scheme of our lives was small potatoes, because no matter how euphoric the fall was for us as sports fans in Kansas City, we still awaken to the reality that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And all of us have this burning desire to overcome this sense of lack. We long for things to be set right. We long for, in one word, righteousness. And some of you woke up this morning even to the reality of wounds of betrayal by a friend or loved one who you trusted with your very life. Some of you woke up as victims of some kind of abuse, whether in the recent past or whether it was distant or, 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 or recent, whether it was physical or emotional, that abuse haunts you to this day and it leaves you wounded and you feel shame, though you yourself were the victim of that abuse. You long for justice. Some of us have felt the bitter sting of racial oppression, whether it's overt or covert, and the sense of alienation has made you feel like an unwelcome guest or impediment rather than a person created in the image of God. See, the longing that we feel screams to us that it's not the way it's supposed to be, and we have a burning desire to overcome the sense of unrighteousness we see in the world around us. It's a brokenness that we see actually in our own lives. If we don't have something, this is the reality of longing, if we don't have something to satisfy our desires, all we feel is despair. 
All of us try to overcome our longing in our own strength. We try to manufacture a sense of righteousness, whether uh, in our own lives or the world around us. But we do this only to find that the unrelenting yearning of our souls is still there. And the invitation of Jesus is to embrace the reality of his restorative and curative kingdom to satisfy the longings of our hearts. So blessed are those, he tells us in our text today, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Wonderful news, he tells us. Wonderful news. The satisfaction of your deepest longing is here. The answer to your longing for things to be set right is here in the reality of my kingdom. Embrace the reality of my kingdom, he tells us. And so as we take a look at Jesus' words today, I want to ask these two questions. What does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? And what does Jesus mean when he says that they will be satisfied? What does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? And what does it mean when he says that they will be satisfied? So what does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? See, together the words hunger and thirst point to the basic fundamental needs of the human body. They're the deepest physical longings that a human being can feel, and they're part of the universal experience of what it looks like to be a human being. They illustrate our dependence on sustenance outside of ourselves. And I remember thinking as I read this beatitude growing up that I should hunger and thirst after righteousness as if hunger and thirst was something that I needed to pursue. But as I was thinking, just like the beatitudes before this, when hunger and thirst is a feeling that finds you, you don't go searching for hunger and thirst. It meets you in the reality of where you are. You don't have to cultivate hunger and thirst. Your lack confronts you in the reality that you don't have what you need. And the second thing that occurred to me is that those of us in the Western world never actually really feel, many of us don't ever actually really feel a deep sense of hunger and a deep sense of thirst. More people do than we want to admit or that we're willing to admit, but most of us don't ever feel a deep hunger and a thirst, this feeling of discomfort and weakness caused by a lack of food or a dryness of mouth, cracked lips and tight skin that reveals dehydration. We don't actually feel that. I mean, we get hungry and thirsty for sure, and I go around after I ate lunch, after I ate breakfast three hours ago, telling people, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm just starving, like, when are we gonna, when are we gonna have lunch? Or I walk around after I just had some water not that long ago and say, oh man, I'm so parched right now. We talk like that, but we never actually feel real hunger and thirst. I read stories a while back who were of people who were in the Rwandan genocide. And one lady recounted how they couldn't build fires to cook food for fear of being found out after they left their village uh, in search for safety. So they dug roots and they tried to find anything raw in the dirt that they could eat. And they only had swamp water that was riddled with parasites to drink. She said they felt real hunger and thirst that was so bad that their father, the father of a family of 12, suggested that they should actually just go back to the genocide because it's better for them to be killed by sword than die of hunger and thirst. They had a real sense of deprivation. There was another boy who recounted how he had to drop out of school uh, so he could work to provide for his family. He said, all you can think about all the time is you need to have, is you want to try to get any food to stop the pain inside of you. And so the writer of the article said that this, this pain felt like a violent, gnawing beast clawing its way through you. One pastor 
Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that hunger and thirst aren't passing feelings. There's something deep and profound that goes on until it's satisfied. It hurts. It's painful. It's something that goes on ever increasing until it makes one desperate. It causes you to feel suffering and agony. See, the hunger and thirst, he says, really means to be desperate, to be starving, to feel like life is ebbing out, to realize my urgent need for help. And that's the kind of longing that the hearers of this first beatitude, of this beatitude felt. Uh, But Jesus qualifies the longing as a hunger and thirst for righteousness. They felt that things weren't the way that they they were supposed to be. And Jesus says what you're longing for is actually righteousness. They long for a world to be set right. And try as they might, they were unable to do anything about it. Sound familiar to your story, your reality? Her life was marked by physical affliction. If you were to look back to Matthew chapter 4, you see Jesus feeling, uh, healing all kinds of physical afflictions. They, had, they were socially marginalized. They were politically oppressed by Rome. And there was religious oppression even from their own religious leaders. They knew all too well for this, uh, this dire need and desire for righteousness, for things to be set right between God and man and man and man. They stood before God without pretense or power base. They hungered and thirsted for righteousness. It may have been the wrong in themselves, one writer says, or perhaps they failed so badly the night before that they cringed before their own sin and they inwardly screamed to be made pure. It may be that they were severely wronged and suffered some terrible injustice, but either way, they're consumed with the longing of the injury to be set right. The world that they lived in was upside down, but we don't have to look to their world to see brokenness and to see pain. We see it in our own lives, and we see it in the world around us that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. It hits us every time we watch the news or every time we read the latest breaking news article, murder, domestic violence, abuse, racism, kidnapping. And it really hit home for this body six months ago. And you probably wrestled with the reality that I mentioned earlier. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. We don't have to look out the window, though, to see that broken reality. It's the gnawing beast in the pit of your stomach every day as you go to work, as you come home, as you uh, engage in your social circles or feel your own estrangement from said social circles. And we may be able to medicate that feeling and, and medicate it and try to live as if we don't have that kind of a longing. We try to fill it with success and with marriage and with children and with money or with sex. And we try to pretend that we found a way to live our life that in a way that mitigates against this longing. But we're just fooling ourselves. We're like Peter Pan and the Lost Boys eating Neverland food and pretending that we're full. All the while we feel the depth of our lack and despair of our inability to do anything sustainable about it. We've got a burning desire for things to be made right, and it consumes us. Everything about our world screams to us that everything around us is broken and that we're broken. And to those of us who feel that in this room today, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Their lives felt like they were cursed, but Jesus calls them blessed, actually, and promises satisfaction. So what does it mean, Jesus, that we'll be satisfied? 
See, for hundreds of years, these people have been waiting on God to fulfill his promise, to send the Messiah to make things right. These were people who were longing for light to shine in the dark reality of their lives. And so they read promises like Isaiah 9 that light was going to dawn on their darkness, and they longed for a day when God would fulfill that promise. In Jeremiah chapter 23, they were being oppressed by religious leaders and scattered by the oppression from outside. And in the face of this injustice, God makes this promise to them. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So righteousness, as we see in this text, is not a disembodied ideal. He's a person. A new king was coming, and he's bringing with him a kingdom of righteousness. He would execute justice and righteousness in the land, and the people would dwell safely and in security in his kingdom. See, the Israelites of Jesus' day were expecting some new political regime, but what Matthew is showing that what's going to set the world right is not some political machine, but a person. And what Matthew's been saying to us from the beginning of the gospel is that he is here. He's here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied because the satisfaction of your longings is here. So since Matthew chapter 1, he declares to us that Jesus is the Davidic king, the seed of Abraham. He's broken into human history, and he's not just a man. He is God with us. He's the one who would come and save his people. The righteous branch is here. The just king is here. And so in, Jesus, in chapter 4, when Jesus declares that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's putting every single one of us on notice that the reality of the kingdom of heaven is condescended to earth in his person. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, the redemptive reign of the righteous branch is broken into human history, and he's come to inaugurate his kingdom and to begin the work of setting the world right. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's declaring to us the reality of this kingdom, and he's inviting all of us who feel far from God, far from that blessedness, to embrace the reality of his redemptive and restorative and curative kingdom. And his declaration dumps those who think they're in the right out of their privileged position and opens the doors to those who are broken people who have no qualifications, who have no entry requirements met to enter the kingdom of God. And he says, welcome, I'm here. The world as they knew it was upside down, but Jesus has come to turn things right side up. He's taking controls of the world as they know it, N.T. Wright says, and he's making them work backwards. Jesus wants us to see that he's come to bring righteousness and satisfy our hunger and thirst for the world to be set right. See, in his kingdom, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And when he says they will be filled, they will be satisfied. He didn't say it. He's not saying to them this blessedness is something that we work for. He says that this is something that not something we bargain for. This is a blessedness that's bestowed on the hungry and the thirsty. They're passive recipients. We're passive recipients of the redemptive reality of his kingdom. We long for the world to be made right. And Jesus promises to fill us to overflowing. We'll be satisfied 
God is acting on our behalf. He's acting on your behalf to satiate the hunger that you feel, to quench the thirst that you feel. And the promise is true because the king has come. But that begs a question, doesn't it? He's come, but the world around us still feels like it's broken. We look back at what happened in August, not far from where we stand today. We look to the events in Paris this past week, and we wonder why hasn't he come and done what he said he was going to do. The righteous king has come to set things right, and we still feel this hunger and thirst for the world around us to be made right. And because as we, we look at the world around us, we still say this ain't the way it's supposed to be. Still not the way it's supposed to be. So the question is, have we been sold a bill of goods? Why do we still feel the oppression and the unrighteousness and injustice? We ask, if the kingdom is real and if he's come to set things right, why hasn't he meted out justice? Why hasn't he done what he said he's going to do? But this line of thinking reveals that we're not actually seeing things the way that we should. We live in a real world, but we don't perceive the deeper reality of the world around us. To be certain, we are victims. We are the oppressed. But the oppression isn't just outside of us. It's also on the inside of us. We're victims, yes, but we're also the perpetrators of the brokenness of shalom in the world around us. We are the vandals that continue the vandalism of shalom. I've got a three-year-old daughter who's back there probably wreaking some kind of havoc or coloring on something she shouldn't. I apologize for that. But one of the funniest things about living life with her is that when she plays with other kids, she has absolutely no problem stealing toys. She has no problem, but oh, as soon as someone steals her toy, she runs crying to me with tears in her eyes, Daddy, that girl took my toy. And while I want to respond in compassion to her, the reality is I just saw you take that same toy from that same little girl, so she was actually just taking it back. We, we like to see ourselves as victims, but we don't like to see ourselves as the oppressor. My friends, we are wounded to be sure, but we're also the wounding. Shalom is broken around us, but we are actually shalom breakers ourselves. That puts us in a bad position, right? It puts us in a bit of a predicament because the righteous king is coming to set things right. He's coming to execute justice. But our problem that the Bible tells us is that left to ourselves, we're on the wrong side of the law. We're on the wrong side of justice. See, the deeper reality of the human predicament is that since the fall in Genesis 3, we have all committed cosmic treason against the kingdom of God. We've set up rival costume kingdoms rather than submit to his kingdom. And he's coming back to judge and lay waste all that stands in opposition to him. See, the consummation of the righteous reign is what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And it's coming and it'll be a day of celebration, a day when the world is set right. But it'll also be a day of wrath for those who are found clinging to their costume kingdoms because they'll be consumed by the righteous justice of the righteous branch. So, my friends, do you see we're shalom breakers and apart from him, we've got a problem. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
And we're tempted to dismiss God's kingdom due to the presence of unrighteousness and sin and brokenness around us. But Peter helps us to see the mercy of God in waiting for him to mete out justice. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says to us, Beloved, do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. My friends, do you see the patience and mercy of God? He's waiting to bring justice because he desires for all of us not to be swept away when he executes justice. His slowness is patience to you, and his patience is an invitation to you and to me. It's good news, my friends, that the king uh, will come to bring justice, uh, but the good news of the kingdom is even better than that. Because if he had come to execute justice at his first coming, if he'd come with a sword in hand to deal with all the unrighteousness, all the brokenness in the world, you and I would have been subject to his wrath. It's good news that he hasn't come and brought justice just yet. He's giving us space and he's giving us time to repent, to believe, to find satisfaction in him. Tim Keller in his uh, latest book on suffering, which I highly recommend to all of you, Says, says it this way. He says that Jesus didn't come to the earth the first time to bring justice, but to bear it. He came not with a sword in his hand, but with nails through his hands. Christian teaching for centuries has been this, that Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment our sins deserve so that someday he can return to earth to end evil without destroying us all. The Son of God entered human suffering to turn evil on its head and eventually end evil and sin and suffering and death itself for good. Jesus has come to deal with unrighteousness, to be sure, but in his mercy he comes to deal with our unrighteousness first. Because God is rich in mercy, the good news for us today is that when he came to earth the first time, he didn't come to bring justice, but to bear it. He came not just to deal with the tyranny of unrighteousness out there, he he came to deal with the tyranny of our own sin, the tyranny of our own unrighteousness. And he did so by submitting himself to the most unjust act in human history. He came to put an end to evil and injustice himself by enduring evil and injustice himself. And he used unrighteousness in that moment against him, against itself so that we could be made righteous. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And in the interim, my friends, in that intervening time between the inauguration of his kingdom and the consummation, it's, a, it's an invitation to us to repent, to trust him, to believe in him. It's not a demand to get yourself together, to, to get right, to step up your righteousness game, because our only hope of being found on the right side of justice on that day is what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3. Our only hope is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes through faith, a righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith in the crucified, resurrected Son of the living God. The only way to enjoy the redemptive and just and righteous reign of the redemptive branch is to lay hold of him in faith as the Lord, your righteousness. Jesus is inviting us to embrace the reality of his kingdom through faith, through the message and work of the king. Because the longing that we feel for the world around us to be made right is only a faint echo of the longing of our own hearts to be made right with God. 
And so however vile and unrighteous you may be, though you've committed treason and stand as an enemy of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is inviting you into his kingdom. He says to us, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because see, my friends, it's only through rejecting our costume kingdoms and embracing his curative one that we'll find the satisfaction of all of our longings. He offers us personal satisfaction and global eschatological satisfaction. He comes to fix us, and he's coming back to fix the world around us. And what Jesus promises in John's gospel is that the hunger and thirst of the undeserving, unworthy, unrighteous people, you know, people like me and like you, he said it can only be satisfied in him. He alone is the living water we long for. He alone is the bread of life that can fill the gnawing hunger of our souls. And whoever comes to him, he says, will never hunger again. And whoever believes in him will never be thirsty again. But that satisfaction isn't just for the sweet by and by. It's a reality that we can live in now because in coming to satisfy our needs, he comes and does for us what we can never do for ourselves. He offers us eternal life, which he tells us is that we can know God right now. We can embrace God right now. We can live in the reality of his kingdom right now. And what's more is that he's going to come back again to fully fulfill his promise, to consummate his kingdom, and we'll find that we'll be satisfied personally, and our longing for the world to be as it should on that day will be satisfied, because the day is coming when he's going to put an end to our longings for things to be made right. There's a day coming that he's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth, and he promises to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He tells us that death shall be no more. Neither will mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the former things will have passed away, because the righteous branch will come on that day and say, behold, I make all things new. All things new. No longer will we hunger and thirst for righteousness in that day, because he's coming to make all things new. But until that day comes, here we sit, here we wait with longing. And Jesus doesn't mean for our hands to be idle while we wait. He's invited us to join him in declaring the satisfaction of all of our longings in him. We can't be satisfied by anything on this earth. We can only be satisfied in him. And so when we embrace the reality of his kingdom, he actually gives us a new identity. And so as we move forward, as North Church moves forward, embracing the reality of his kingdom, he offers you a new identity. If you were to look down in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, he tells us what our identity is if we embrace his reality. He calls us salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And see, salt works in two ways. It draws out the full flavor of the food it's seasoning, and it serves as a preservative against decay. And light does two things as well. Light pushes back darkness, and it guides you to safety. See, God's called us to live as those who have embraced his kingdom, to live in such a way where we give a taste of the beauty of the life of his kingdom, and we serve as a preservative against all the putrefaction and decay in the world around us. He's commissioned us ordinary people to, who have been saved by the grace of a great, big, and merciful God to be light-bearing agents who push back darkness and shine the light of Jesus, inviting them to come to him, to run to him for safety, for satisfaction. And if you trust Jesus, that's your identity. And that's why he's placed 
North Church here in this location, North Church in North County. He knew what was going to be facing you in August. He knows what's going to be facing you in 2015. And he says, you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. When I talked with Rick a few weeks back, I asked him, I said, hey, man, like, here's what I'm seeing on the news. Like, what do you see actually on the ground there? Because I trust you as my friend more than I trust whatever these Pontiacs on the news are telling me about what's happening in your city. He says to me this. He says, what I see is a canvas on which God can paint the beauty of the gospel. That's what I see when I look at Ferguson, Missouri. I see a canvas on which God wants to paint the redemptive reality of his kingdom. And the reason he says that is because, my friends, the veneer has been ripped off. People who thought things are okay, that this world is home, they see it's not. They see it's broken, which is, the good, is good news for us because God brings about redemption where we're willing to finally admit that things are just as broken as he says that they are. And people around you see that things are just as broken as God says that they are. And so what I've prayed for this body, what I've prayed for this church is that God mobilizes you as the people of God to be agents of social and spiritual and cultural renewal. And I'm praying that the narrative of the, of the gospel, the reconciliation between God and man, well, would also be on display in the reconciliation between uh, men across racial, across socioeconomic lines in this city, in this county. But as we work to that end, our temptation is going to be to find our identity in what we're doing and trying to fix what's broken around us. Our hope in our identity is, is not in, in being and in, in fixing everything. Our hope is in the one who calls us salt and light. Our hope is in Jesus alone. Our only hope is to be found in him, wearing his righteousness, delighting in him, looking to him to be the satisfaction of all of our longings. And what he says to all of us is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So as we move to a time of response today, I'm going to pray for us. Um, and our band, I think, is going to come back forward, um, and we'll continue in worship. Lord Jesus, you say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for we will be satisfied. You promise satisfaction, and you've come to deliver it. You promise that our longing for things around us to be made right will be satisfied in you. And Lord Jesus, you've come and done for us what we could never do for ourselves in your broken body and in your shed blood. You've made us right with God. You've satisfied our longing for our own righteousness. And so, God, while we wait for the day in which you will come and finally make all things right, give us hope, grant faith, grant joy, grant repentance, and grant that we would be your hands and feet in North County. I pray that the people of God here would rise up preaching the gospel of God, declaring and demonstrating in word and in deed the reality of your kingdom. And I pray that this county, this city, Florissant, and I pray that the city down the road, Ferguson, would be transformed by the gospel of Jesus, that people who are longing for things to be made right would see that Jesus alone can satisfy that longing. So God, grant us joy in your presence as we continue in worship. Grant faith, grant repentance, and help us to see and know that you are the satisfaction of everything that we long for. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.